Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we take a week or two to re-listen to each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums, and then we get together to have a chat and reassess them. This time we're up to episode seven, which is Blonde on Blonde, which was released in June 1966. So Rich, um, as is traditional, I tend to ask you how familiar you were with the record before we started listening to it again in this exercise. Again, I know the answer this time, um, but do you want to tell us a little bit about your history with Blonde on Blonde? Yeah, I mean, I actually came to this one later, much later. I was kind of university age. Um, and given that I, I sort of discovered Highway 61 uh, 14 or 15 years of age, I mean, that's a long time in, the, in, a, in a sort of adolescent life. And so I, I certainly felt more mature when I first started listening to this. I don't think uh, I'd have fooled anyone at the time that I was. But um, yeah, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to this one, though, for the last couple of weeks because it's really felt almost like like discovering it again this is one that i haven't listened to a great deal in the interim and so so yeah i've 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 definitely enjoyed this and i mean i think obviously it's worth it's worth talking about the uh, the shakespearean angle here i mean we call this podcast bob dylan american shakespeare we're fully aware as we've said on several occasions that some of the links are a bit spurious but i think this the important thing about this and and i think i'm i'm living proof of this is that it was kind of, I suppose, ahead of its time, really. Um, I mean, I was always, as a, as a teenager, a devotee of the kind of three-minute pop song, really. But this takes a whole lot more work. It definitely takes more work. And it doesn't give you that kind of instant gratification. It's very much a kind of slower burn. And I think the, the kind of comparison I'd like to make, just, just before we start getting into this, is in, in the book, uh, The True Performing of It by Andrew Muir, he talks about two Shakespearean plays. He talks about Titus Andronicus, and he also talks about King Lear. And as he says with this, and, and the, the kind of link that he makes is between um, the fact, basically, that Titus Andronicus, at the time, massively, massively popular. Uh, sword fights, swashbuckling, lots of blood, lots of gore, you know, everything that an Elizabethan audience really went for. Um, King, King Lear, I mean, we, we all know that King Lear is this fabulous play. It's incredible. But at the time, it, it, people, it wasn't that they didn't get it necessarily. It was just that it was, it was definitely ahead of its time. And I think making that link in, in, in this instance, I think we can probably put Blonde, blonde on Blonde in, this, in that kind of category. It's, it's, it was definitely ahead of its time. I mean, in a kind of Van Gogh-like way where people maybe didn't, maybe it's a little bit too out there to kind of suggest that people didn't get it at the time fully. But this, this was something else. This sort of pointed to a, a, a different way. And so I, I definitely, on first listen as a teenager, I did not appreciate that at all. I didn't get it. And, and so I hope, hope this time around, uh, having listened to it for a couple of weeks, that, that I've kind of arrived at that. So what about you, Mark? What's, what's your history with this, with this album? Well, a little bit different because I found it interesting what you said there about the slow burn effect. Because for me, it was much more instant that I, I loved the album from the outset. I spoke last time about uh, how I selected Highway 61 as my first Bob Dylan album, simply because it was the highest rated album in the the book I had with the 1,000 greatest albums of all time. And obviously, that's the definitive truth of what a great album is. So you've got to start with Highway 61, which was number two, and Blonde on Blonde was number four. So I got that one next. And yeah, so I, I got back very early on in my, my Bob Dylan listening career. But of course, I'd known 
I Want You from The Greatest Hits, which was the very first album I'd listened to. So I knew that I absolutely adored that. Still to this day, I think if I was going to be forced to pick one Bob Dylan song as my favourite, it would be that one. And of course, Rainy Day Women was also on there. So I had those hooks quite early in the record, which I could hang my hat on. And then quite quickly, you hit with Visions of Johanna, which I think even on first listen is uh, captivating. I think I also mentioned last time that I was the kind of person who'd be checking the, the songs and, and seeing what was coming up and, and knowing that you had this this epic at the end, Side-Eyed Lady, was something I really appreciated. And although I didn't understand any of it at the time, it was still something quite marvellous to behold. So yeah, it's been one that I've known for a long time and I've always come back to. But what you said about the slow burn, I think definitely this last couple of weeks, listening to it repeatedly, reading about it, reflecting on the lyrics, thinking about the arrangements, there's a lot more in it than I appreciated on those first few listens a couple of decades ago, for sure. Yeah, I, should, I mean, I, I totally get that. And I, I should also go back to the uh, the other point that Andrew Muir makes about this one is that Self-Portrait actually on, on release sold twice as many copies as, as Blonde on Blonde did. So in, in terms of the kind of what the record uh, buying public are going for I think it's quite telling really because I think if you asked anyone now or you looked in any of those if <laughs> if they still make those kind of greatest <laughs> all-time kind of books and charts I don't think that self-portrait would probably feature anywhere near as highly if it featured at all as Blonde on Blonde so <laughs> yeah I mean yeah you, you mentioned some of the big songs and and yeah I mean I I, I guess I had a bit of familiarity from some of these the, the greatest hits uh, packages as well but let's let's kind of dive in and, and talk about a few of these then and we can kind of go back I think and maybe talk about the the recording in general but you mentioned a couple of those that hit you Visions of Johanna in particular and and Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands I mean what about Visions of Johanna then? Because I, I totally agree. I mean, this was one that kind of blew me away on first listen. I, I really, it, it really hit me. But I had no clue what it was about then. I'm not entirely sure. In fact, I, I, I'm, I am entirely sure that I haven't got much of an idea about what it's, uh, what it relates to now. Really, I mean, it's one of these things. In, in that um, Anthony Scuduto book, he talks a lot about the kind of it's sort of there's a bit of zen buddhism in there he thinks and a bit of kind of the, the concept of uh, enlightenment and transcendentalism and all of those kind of things and he i think from from what i remember he kind of asserts that it's maybe like a reaction against stardom because of course bob dylan was obviously massive news at this point in time i mean it's it's just a it's an incredible song it's a brilliant song but explain it to me mark <laughs> 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 I think I think that's the definition of a hospital pass, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, sidestepping that slightly, again, I agree. This was one which grabbed me when I first heard it, but I could not understand why at all. And I think on first listen, although I could obviously appreciate this as a great song, I was much more attracted to "I Want You" as, a, as you know. As I've already said, it's a very, very easily accessible song just from the melody and the beautiful arrangement. I was kind of impressed by the fact that you had songs on the scope of Side-Eyed Lady and also Stuck Inside a Mobile. And those are the things that really got my attention when I first listened to the album. So this one was, was, was not really one of my highlights at that time. And you're right, it's one of those ones that does grow on you as, as, time, as time progresses. Well, for me anyway, I certainly didn't recognise it as the, the great song that I see it as now on first listen. But I guess... One of the things that really interested me this time was, again, 
we talked about how like a rolling stone at the start of the recording of Highway 61 was almost like a liftoff point for him. He was going to be doing something new that really reinvigorated his muse and, and allowed him to, to, to work with that great burst of creativity that he had at that time. And I, I think we, or I suggested that actually Blonde on Blonde was a continuation of that energy. But what I hadn't really realized was that actually perhaps this song at the start of Blonde on Blonde was actually acting in the same way as, as something fresh but again reinvigorated him and, and pointed the direction to something completely new again so perhaps that's something we'll we'll touch on later the the, the discontinuities between highway 61 and, and blonde on blonde but yeah in terms of what this is about it was an unfair question <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i think i'll, I'll pass back to you in, in a minute rich uh, do the old one too but i think for me this is a classic example of where we could we could, we could have a conversation about the meaning, or, or well, perhaps we couldn't, but learned people could have a conversation about the meaning of the song. But actually, what really matters is the feeling and the accumulation of those images and the interplay with the delivery and the arrangement. And it's, it exists as a song rather than a, a poem on the page for me. And that's where it derives its power from. The way he phrases things, um, the way he has little emphasis in his delivery, it's those things that make the song for me rather than any kind of analysis of the, the images as they appear on the page. I totally agree with that. And I mean, my certainly listening to it this time around, I think that, I mean, I'm, I'm by, by far the, the, not the most, the, the, or not the first person I should say to, to, to say this about Bob Dylan, but it's this, it's this idea of phrases and it's this idea of, as you say, the wordplay, but I think I mean, it'd be interesting to to hear the thoughts on on, on maybe someone who who spoke English as like a, as an additional language, for example, listening to this, because I think that the phrases work in a way that the meaning is not actually always that relevant. It's almost like the sound of the phrases is almost like an instrument itself. And I think that all of these images and the way that the language and the, the way that these kind of, in some cases, kind of quite oxymoronic kind of words are thrown together, it works, but it's it's as much to do with the sound of those things as it is to do with the with the meaning. And I think that's why that's one of the reasons why this this works. It's like the voice or the the kind of syllabary almost is like as, as as an instrument, I suppose. And I think that's why Visions of Johanna works so well. I mean that that first line, um, ain't it just like the night to play tricks when you're trying to be so quiet? It's brilliant, and and you kind of know that it's brilliant when you listen to it. But I mean, in terms of what it actually means, I'm I'm still mystified. I think I, w I will remain mystified by that. But it just sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> and at, and at risk of being entirely inconclusive, I'll probably leave it there and hand back over to you. No, but I think you're absolutely right. And the the thing that's so tantalising about this song is that sometimes you can really get to that meaning, can't you? You or you feel like you're approaching it, like the lines about the ghost of electricity howling in the bones of a face, and the little bit that precedes it with the the night watchman clicking his his flashlight at um, the people assembled in the, the vacant lot or wherever it is. But you're getting at something concrete there, aren't you? And you, you're getting a real sense of place, and you're also getting a sense of, uh, I suppose emotional presence in the song but just when you think you're getting there it just slips away doesn't it and it's and and that's the genius of the song i think because the song itself has the same role in our minds that the visions of johanna seem to have in the mind of the singer and yeah that's a bit of a cop-out isn't it but i think that's certainly part of the beauty of it yeah i mean listen i, th I think if, if, if we're going to try and uh, 
try and arrive at some kind of conclusive meaning, then uh, then 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 we're we're overshooting ourselves probably with this one. But yeah, I, I think all of the things that you've just said there, I totally agree with. And I think, I mean, it, it's it's just outstanding, isn't it? Do we want to move on to sad-eyed lady, or do you, have you got anything else that you'd like to say about Johanna? No, no. Let's let's move on to sad-eyed lady. Okay. This one hit me. I remember the first time I heard this distinctly, I was at uni. The person who was playing it was, uh, was Luke Brown, my mate Luke Brown, who's a writer now, like a writer of fiction. And uh, I'll give him a plug here, but um, he, he wrote a novel called My Biggest Lie, which is brilliant. And also in the room, actually, was um, another friend of mine, Will Hawks, who, um, who's become a, a journalist of some, some renown. And yeah, I'd, I'd never heard this before. I'd never heard uh, Sad Old Lady of the Lowland. And I, I remember just being absolutely blown away. It probably helped that I was in a, a sort of sent, a state of uh, probably fairly severe inebriation at the time of first hearing it. But nonetheless, I just thought, wow, this is an amazing song. This is incredible. Sort of two minutes in, listening to it, thinking, this is astonishing. And then it kept going and it kept going and it kept going. And, and just the images upon images upon images. And I think, I, I guess I was at that age where such things make a, a quite profound uh, sort of impression on you. But I mean, yeah, I have come back to this song. And yeah, again, as with Visions of Johanna, I've, I've not been able to ascribe a great deal of meaning to many of the lines, but it remains a kind of kind of evergreen for me. Yeah, well, that's the thing about it, isn't it? I, I agree. I mean, I still, to this day, find it an absolutely wonderful listen. Is there a better way to spend a sunny afternoon than just sitting outside with this on the headphones and a nice glass of whatever you fancy in your hand? I mean, it's still consistently a, a marvellous experience to listen to, which has got to has got to tell you something about the quality of the songwriting and the performance, hasn't it? But yeah, I, I think it's been criticized for that hasn't it I, I remember reading a very snarky review of it years ago where someone was saying oh uh, please define a geranium kiss and all this um, this sort of stuff and you, you certainly can start picking holes in this quite easily but I, I share your view it doesn't really matter you don't want to be listening to this in a literal frame of mind and there are lines in it that, that are quite literal or even traditional in a, in a way, aren't there? Like the the bits about the moonlight swimming in her eyes and the silhouette when the sunlight dims, which is very pretty, but also veering towards that kind of cliche. But on the other hand, you've got these absolutely ludicrous lines that you wonder where on earth they've come from. The sheet metal memory of Canary Row probably being the, which the most... Uh, is that, that remains my favourite Bob Dylan line, though. Um, that's the, that is absolutely my favourite... I mean, who who knows what 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 does it mean? And uh, he also talks about your sheets like metal before that line. Yes, you know, he does. Yes, I always wonder if he stumbled on that. But yeah, your sheet metal memory of Canary Row, I think, is brilliant. But I mean, it, I'd like to think it meant something. I don't think it does. Sorry, I interrupted there. Back to you. No, no, absolutely. Um, I, I agree. Um, and and that's the key thing. It doesn't matter, does it? There is a really banal and literal explanation of the song itself rather than the specific images which is that it's a marriage song to his wife and the kind of the antagonist in the song is her ex-husband and actually just on that i had never thought of this before but in the final verse when he talks about now you stand with your thief i wondered if actually that's dylan himself in the song and it would be lovely if it was i've got no idea if, if that's the case or not 
But I had no idea about any of that the first time I heard it. And I don't think about it when I listen to it again. It's, it's as you say, it's the accumulation of images that gives it its power. And we must say the performance both his performance and the way that the musicians treat it. And I know uh, there's a very famous story about that that, uh, that you can probably relate, Rich. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we'll, we'll probably talk about the, the Nashville sessions slightly later on. But, you know, all of these guys, all of these, uh, these session musicians were on the clock. And of course, Bob Dylan's approach in this case was it was very, very immediate. It was like, right, here's a song, let's play it. And so they're playing along with it. And it's, it's been said, I think it's Kenny Buttery or one of the guys who was on, on the session says, if you listen to it, I think it's after like the second verse, it all rises because, of course, they're thinking, right, this is going to kick in and it's going to kind of go to the, the the last chorus and then we're out kind of thing. And so they all build. And then, of course, they, they've got nowhere to go. So they have to drop right back down for another nine minutes or whatever it is, which, which I just think is brilliant. But in no way does that, in my mind anyway, in no way does that diminish the, the quality of performance. And I mean, yeah, going back to, to what you said, the accumulation of images, I mean, this... I see this as a very, very modernist, this is a bit William Carlos Williamsy kind of poetic sort of approach because it's, you, you're being bombarded with all of these fascinating, fascinating lines, fascinating images, but it works. And it works in a way that I must admit, I've, I've read bits and pieces of his novel Tarantula and I don't think that that kind of almost like sort of disembodied approach or whatever you might uh, call it, I don't think it works in prose, but it, it absolutely works here. I think it's 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 also worth mentioning as well. I'll, I'll just kind of go back to this that um, the first time I heard this was in a kind of collaborative listening environment, where back in the day, for those people who <laughs> might be slightly younger listening to this, people used to sit around listening to records, and I think that's a really interesting thing that's perhaps been lost in the in the sort of modern era kind of thing, because you'd listen to things and then you'd, you'd you'd kind of discuss exactly what what you'd heard in a way that probably doesn't work in the same way in the kind of streaming era. But anyway, I've got on my soapbox now, I've gone off on one. That's sort of my take on, on Sad-Eyed Lady. But I mean, let's go, let's go back a, a little bit and think about, about the kind of recording setup here. So do you want to kind of enlighten us, Mark? Yeah, well, this, this goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier on, doesn't it, about how, uh, in a way, Visions of Johanna was the big breakthrough for him in the same way that like a Rolling Stone had been the breakthrough on Highway 61. And I think the story of this is pretty well known. So he was still working at an incredible pace, wasn't he, right the way through 1965. He'd started playing with the Hawks, who became the band. I think the Hollywood Bowl was the first gig he played with them. But then they played a lot of shows in California and around North America all through that autumn. And meanwhile, he was already thinking about his next album. So he went in and did a lot of recording with the band and with other musicians too, I think. But he wasn't quite getting it, was he? So he, he did stuff like Positively Fourth Street and he did uh, One of Us Must Know, which ended up on this album in New York. I think it, that was January by the time they'd, they put that together. And he'd done a version of Visions of Johanna, hadn't he, in New York, which was bootlegged for many years before finally being released but it wasn't quite clicking so they ended up moving to Nashville and again still in this very frenetic environment of doing a bit of recording going out and playing some shows coming back they ended up nailing the rest of the record in the February and the March so by the time this came out it had been nearly a year since Highway 61 which for him at the time was a, a long gap between records but but he had still been in that, that really full-on 
um, high velocity manner of working that he'd been in for at least 18 months prior to the, this album coming out. So I guess, yeah, that, I suppose moving to Nashville was the, the big thing, wasn't it? So, yeah, I mean, we've talked about the, the big songs on this and I, I do have a, a bit of a curveball to throw in on that because I think there might be one more song that should be considered a big song. But we'll come to that. But before we do, it's probably worth just zooming out a little bit and thinking about the album as a whole. Because one of the things that I always find whenever I take the time to sit and listen to this album all the way through is that what you said about Side-Eyed Lady and the accumulation of images lending it its power, I think that applies equally to the album as a whole because it's that assistant impact of all these astonishing images that accumulates in Side-Eyed Lady that really leaves you elated and exhausted at the end of the album and, and really, for me, gives it its its longevity and its power. So probably worth just just touching on the structure of it a little bit. So we end with Sad-Eyed Lady, but of course we start with a song that's rather different. Yeah, I mean, we begin with Rainy Day Women. Um, and we actually had uh, a thank you very much for all those people who've, who've posted questions on Twitter. Unfortunately, we're not gonna get through all of them, but one of them, uh, a Bob Dylan primer actually, posed the question of, of why? Why did he, <laughs> whatever possessed him? <laughs> to start this majestic, wonderful, swirling masterpiece of an album with the frankly grating and jokey Rainy Day Women. And um, yeah, I mean, what do you reckon, Mark? I mean, it is, it is, an, odd, it is an odd choice, isn't it? I mean, you, you talk about this in terms of a structure. Clearly, the, <laughs> in order to have this accumulation of images, etc., you've got to have a very thought-out structure. But this seems like a strange way to open it, quite frankly. So what do you reckon? Well. I suppose it is fairly typical of Bob Dylan to be a little bit perverse on occasion, so we can't rule that out, I suppose. One thing that uh, occurred to me is that you couldn't really put it anywhere else, could you, other than at the end, because it would completely disrupt the flow of the rest of the album. So there is that. It was quite a successful single as well, wasn't it, bizarrely? I mean, as, as I mentioned, it did feature on the greatest hits, so... In that way, it was, um, you know, he was starting with a bang, I suppose, um, with one of his biggest ever hits. But essentially, I have no idea why, why he, uh, he decided to start with this song. But I do think that it, it kind of works because one of the things that's so astonishing about this album all the way through after Rainy Day Women is the way in which it really encapsulates that late night city sort of slightly wired, but also exhausted sort of stumbling, confused feeling. I mean, it captures that better than any other album that I know of. And I, I thought, well, actually, Rainy Day Women is almost like the party that you go to. You know, you've, you, you're, you, you've got a, an evening lined up and it starts off quite normally. Um, you get yourself ready. You meet up with a couple of friends. You find yourself at a party. Things are swinging along. It gets a little bit boozy. Things get a little bit strange. And then before you know it, the evening takes a, a very different turn. And by 3 a.m., you're, you're sitting around um, crying over, over lost loves um, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, and so I think Rainy Day Women works in that sort of way. It's kind of like the, um, the entree to the, the evening that's going to unfold and this, this long journey through that night that finally arrives at the dawn of Sad-Eyed Lady. That's a, I'm, I'm reminded of, a, of an anecdotal thing here of uh, years ago when we used to live in Japan and work out there. Um, when we went to a, you know, you, uh, it was a party, probably about three in the morning, where 
you inadvertently set yourself on fire. Do you remember that one, Mark? That's kind of, that has nothing to do with the song. Uh, I'm sure at the start of the evening, you didn't actually intend to do that. No, I, but I do I also... Should, I should uh, sort of say, not in a rage against the machine self-emulation kind of way, but just in the... There were errant candles in this this girl's flat that we all ended up in from memory. <laughs> I, I think do also remember that that might have been the night when I had to almost pull you out of the the Osaka Canal um, when you you almost fell in off your bike. But yeah, you were yeah, that, let's, that um, sounds, let's. That sounds pretty much par for the course. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> um, but going back to to rainy day women, I think I think I mean it's this sense of mischief, isn't it? I mean I think that, that there's the rebellious attitude, and I think that that very much ties in with Shakespeare as well. I mean it's this idea that you you're pushing back, you, you you're pushing boundaries, you're seeing what you can get away with. And I think he's he's very much doing that here. And you're right, it either goes at the start or it goes at the end. But I mean, I think it works at the start because you put this in at the end. It would be like putting you like putting one of those, uh, you know, remember I, I say remember, but back in I think the fifties and probably early sixties, they used to have Charles Atlas used to do the uh, the adverts for bodybuilding, and he used to say, you know, you'd be a, like a, a seven stone weakling. You need to get on this. It'd be like putting one of the seven stone weaklings off of one of those adverts in the ring against Muhammad Ali, putting this uh, rainy day women against sad eyed ladies. So there's a, there's only one place that can be. I've mixed metaphors and gone down ridiculous analogies here, but um, yeah, yeah. Who who knows? But, I mean, it's, no, that was that was something the birds did around this time, wasn't it? Ending ending albums with a with a joke, but it would have been entirely inappropriate here, certainly. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to that. What's what's that Shelton quote that? Uh, uh, oh, you've you've mentioned it before. Yeah, he he calls Blonde and Blonde an album that starts with a joke and ends with a hymn, which is pretty much spot on, isn't it? But I think moving on a little bit from the structure to the the kind of the core of the album. Um, I suppose Rainy Day Women is quite a nice place to to jump off from because there's that very famous anecdote about the recording of Rainy Day Women, I think it was, where they decided they needed a, a trombone player, was it, or a trumpet player, and they didn't have one. So someone places a phone call at one o'clock in the morning and half an hour later, someone rocks up, plays the part perfectly, packs up and goes home again. And um that was the, the the message is that's the great thing about being in Nashville. You can't get that anywhere else. And so, yeah, I mean, this is the big thing about it, isn't it? Although, as we've said, one of the tracks was recorded in New York. The bulk of it was done in Nashville. And and that wasn't a normal thing for a rock musician or any kind of New York musician to do at this time, was it, Rich? No, not at all. And I mean, I think it's, it's important and it, it probably is a big ingredient to the success of this album because I mean many moons ago I remember going to Nashville as a effectively a wannabe kind of musician and um, I remember the the guy who uh, when, when you arrive at Nashville airport there's more it's one of those things there's more guitar cases on the carousel than there are suitcases but the bloke who uh, who pulled the the guitar case off for me he said listen I'm, I'm playing downtown tonight you've got to come and check out my band and so I did and I heard him play and he played so well that I never wanted to pick up the guitar ever again I mean that was that because uh, and I never I never ever played lead guitar uh, in, in a serious way since because Nashville musicians are so good you give them a chord chart and they'll maybe they'll have a run through but that's all they'll ever need and then they'll nail it the the, the next time around and 
And I think that that we talked last time a lot about the immediacy of Bob Dylan and that amount of energy and, and, and the fact that he just wanted things right now. Let's um, I want to move on to the next thing. And if you've got the best session players in the world, then then it's going to facilitate that, isn't it? And I think I think that's probably one of the things that makes it so so impressive is that you can if you've got musicianship of that quality and performances of that quality then you, you can get away with it and I mean Nashville I know people talk about it as being like a production line but these are very soulful performances I think any way you look at it oh yeah without doubt and I think that was one of the things that made me reflect on the relationship between this and Highway 61 because well okay just going off on one of my tangents again I do think that we're quite hidebound a lot of the time when we talk about music but even perhaps when we listen to it and we experience it by this kind of notion of the canon and um, in the case of 60s rock you know everyone can reel off the classic mid-60s albums Um, and in Dylan's case it's this one and Highway 61 and bringing it all back home and and that that I think that le- leads to this kind of sense of the, the trilogy that we talked about last time and and in the last episode I said well I thought actually Highway 61 was probably quite distinct from bringing it all back home in a lot of ways and actually I now think Blonde on Blonde is absolutely distinct from both of them too lyrically and thematically we'll we'll probably touch on that a bit later but musically one of the things that's so enjoyable about highway 61 is this sense that you're you're on a you're on a roller coaster and it's the most thrilling thing you've ever been on but my goodness at any minute you might be careering off the edge into goodness knows what but you don't have any of that on blonde on blonde do you but what you lose in that kind of immediate vibrancy and excitement you gain in the textures the relaxed accomplishment, the, the the beauty of a lot of the arrangements and, and, and the, the virtuosity of the performances. I totally agree. I mean, he, Dylan subsequently has, has, has talked about what he termed that thin, wild mercury sound. And actually, we had a couple of questions on, on, on Twitter that, that kind of pertain to this as well, this idea of the thin, wild mercury sound. And he, he said that that was what he had in his head. And he, he, he claims that he never got kind of closer to this particular sound than, than he did on this, on, on this record. And I think it's, it's one of those strange things. Is this a thing? Does it, does it actually mean anything or is it just a sound bite? But I mean, I, there's, there's something, I mean, I think it sounds thinner as an album. I think it sounds thinner as a record in some respects. There's a delicacy there, which I don't think there is on Highway 61. I think Highway 61 is kind of like full tilt, pretty much all guns blazing, with the exception, obviously, of Desolation Road. But the rest of it is is pretty much going for it. Whereas this, this just seems a lot more restrained. But there's a, yeah, like I say, I suppose that word delicacy that I've already used, that's probably the what I kind of, what I, what I kind of, go with in terms of the production what do you reckon yeah it is a good word to use without doubt and i think in reference to that twitter question that we got you know what was it that he found in nashville that he didn't find in new york it's hard to say on the basis of the album itself isn't it because as our twitter correspondent pointed out one of us must know is is no uh, <laughs> it's no laggard on this album is it it's a <laughs> it's a it's a good cut but i guess the thing is that what he'd been struggling with in new york i guess was that kind of easy realization of his vision which you've already alluded to if you've got those nashville session players you don't have to worry about that and the recording sessions have been quite fraught there's the fantastic new york performance of she's your lover now isn't there which on the version that was officially released at least breaks down tantalizingly close to the end and i suppose it was it was it was things like that that were were stymieing him in new york 
if he'd recorded the whole thing there, would he have had a different sound? Yes, of course he would. It would have been closer, wouldn't it, to, to Highway 61. But I, I, I don't really get the sense. I don't, I don't really buy the idea that he, he went to Nashville with a new idea in his head. And that was what was created by the musicians. I think it was much more about him turning up there under the influence of um, his producer, apparently, and then serendipitously um, finding that the material he was producing at the same time meshed with this wonderful crop of musicians to produce something um, which I think is still unique and was certainly unique at the time. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was Bob Johnston, wasn't it? Was that the? Was that who produced this? Yeah. 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 Um, and. I mean, because he'd had uh, is uh, is it Charlie Charlie blah, the, the the guy that played um, that played the guitar in Desolation Row was a was a Nashville cat basically, and uh, the, yeah, the story comes. And McCoy, right? That, yeah, that's that's right. the The story sort of goes that he'd almost used him as bait to to lure Bob Dylan to to Nashville. I mean, it, who knows how uh, how realistic that was, but. I just love the fact that they were all, all these guys were, you know, musicians, union players. They were all on the clock. They were all, um, they, they, I mean, it shows how, how big and successful he was, that they were, they could sit around playing cards and have a nap and I don't know, play pool or whatever, and just wait to be kind of summoned into the studio. And I mean, it must've been like a dream ticket for them, but it must've been like a dream for him, for Bob Dylan as well, because of course he, he's there and he's ready to, um, to, to have these, these musicians on hand to, to kind of realize his vision, as you've said. So yeah, pretty amazing. So I was just going to yeah. say, I think um, you mentioned when we were chatting previously that that shows how big he was, doesn't it? Um, you know, that he was able to have all these people um, at his beck and call. We talked about how he'd been so far ahead of everybody else from a, a critical point of view on, on Highway 61. But it's, it's worth remembering how big a star he was at the time as well, you know. And even the world tour he was on, which eventually led to him being so burnt out that uh, this is the last we see of him for a while. Even that is not something that the average performer would do at this time. Easy to forget now in the, the year of uh, everyone being on the road for, uh, for years. But the fact he was, he was touring so much in North America, going to Australia, going to Europe. This was a guy who was pretty much dominating the, the pop rock scene at the time. Yeah, completely. I mean, he, he sort of invented the pop rock scene, didn't he? But he, um, he certainly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a, a lot of that was probably, I mean, Albert Grossman certainly seemed pretty keen to, to work him quite hard with his touring ske- sort of schedule. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it all kind of contributed to the pace of writing, the pace of recording and everything like that, because he was, if he wasn't in the studio, he was out on the road, essentially. That was, it was just like a, a constant thing. So it's, yeah, I mean, in, in retrospect, it's little wonder that he got, he got burnt out as he did. I mean, what do we think? We've, we've talked quite a lot about Highway 61 and the, the sort of difference between this. And I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think that everyone talks about the classic trilogy of the mid 60s electric albums but i think they kind of stand alone really i mean they yes they're conveniently lumped together by time but i think that they there's very different things happening on 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 each of them and i mean one of the things that you picked up on and you probably want to expand on this actually is this idea of sort of blues versus kind of folk versus pop which i think is a bit of a conflict that runs throughout these these three albums in the trilogy i mean What's, what's your what's your theory then, Mark? Um, well, I wouldn't necessarily dignify this with the label of theory, but we did talk, didn't we, about how on bringing it all back home, subterranean homesick blues aside, 
the electric tracks are largely electric blues, aren't they? Uh, with those little uh, acoustic, electroacoustic ballads thrown into the mix. So nothing tremendously um, original about those songs. And then in contrast, when you get onto Highway 61, you've got this invention of rock music, arguably, which is on a completely different level. But I think there's still a very clear debt to the blues on a lot of the performances on Highway 61. And I think that's very diminished on Blonde on Blonde. Of course, there are blues influences, as we'll, we'll talk about. But I think we're much more now into sort of a kind of high mid-60s pop rock uh, sort of feel. A lot of these arrangements, a lot of the structures, a lot of the melodies, they could be on Beatles records, they could be Motown singles. You can feel that kind of vibe on a lot of the stuff. And I think that reflects the group of musicians that are playing, but also the way that Bob Dylan himself had been influenced by those sorts of people over the previous, uh, the previous year or so. Yeah, I agree totally. I think it's uh, it's like a very kind of it's like a high cultured uh, pop rock, really, isn't it? But I mean, I think all of these guys, uh, Bob Dylan, obviously, but the the session guys, they'd have been fam- very very familiar with all the stuff that was being played on the radio. Motown was massive. I mean, songs like "I Want You," I mean, are incredibly poppy, and they have all of those kind of hallmarks. So, yeah, completely. So. I mean, do we want to should we delve into a couple more songs then before we talk about kind of themes and things like that? I mean, uh, do you, you fancy jumping in? Yeah, I will do. Um, so I'll go with Stuck Inside a Mobile. This one, as I mentioned at the start, was one of the ones that really leapt out at me when I first heard it. And I've loved it ever since. And the reason it comes to mind now is because it is very much in that kind of pop rock genre, isn't it? <laughs> Although not many similar uh, songs last for seven and a half minutes. <laughs> so I guess what interests me about this song now is that you've still got for me that kind of picture song quality that we talked about from Highway 61, the sort of stuff you get on Tombstone Blues and Desolation Row, but in a much, much different musical context. And I can't quite make my mind up whether it's because of the, the jaunty, poppy music that makes me feel this is less bleak, or whether it's the images themselves which are also less bleak. And I think it's a little bit of both. But actually, although it is such a jaunty song, there's there's a quite a lot of darkness in there. And I love the verse about um, Ruthie and her, uh, is it her Panamanian room or Panamanian moon? Uh, I'm getting confused. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, the, the, um, there's also there's also that that very bleak verse about Grandpa died last week and he's buried in the rocks and all of that kind of stuff. Which yes, <laughs> absolutely. So you know there is all that going on, but I I do see that song as a as a as a continuation of that theme that he'd started on on Highway 61, or that that style I should say that he'd started on on Highway 61. But I've never quite been able to make up my mind as to whether it should really be considered a big Bob Dylan song. Um, what I'm getting at is I'm, I'm not quite sure if I should allow myself to like it as much as I do. Because <laughs> at the back of my mind, I kind of wonder whether it's all complete nonsense. But what do you think, Rich? Well, I, th- I mean, you'd be in good company if you did think it was nonsense. Because, I mean, John Lennon famously dissed it, didn't he? I mean, I think it was a demo that he did, which was uh, a kind of spoof, a parody, not a spoof, a, a parody, um, which he called Stuck Inside of Lexicon with the Rodgers Thesaurus Blues again, which uh, I think says it all, really. I mean, clearly he didn't think that it was a song of any great substance. I do, I, I kind of go, go more along with the your kind of lines here i think there is more to it i think it's 
it's definitely kind of it continues from that highway 61 feel if anything in a, in a slightly more light-hearted way i mean obviously i'll mention the fact that that shakespeare gets a look in in this uh, instance uh, he's in the alley with his pointed shoes and his his cap or his hat i forget which one um so my suspicion is that Shakespeare was clearly on his mind at this point in time. Um, <laughs> for the purposes of this podcast, we will use that and embrace it. I'm not sure that that sheds any real light on the uh, on what it's all about. But um, yeah, I mean, I like it. I, I think it's it's an enjoyable listen. This one, isn't it? And but at the same time, it's a thought provoking listen. And I mean. I know that sounds quite sort of flippant and dismissive and clearly not in the kind of high scholarly style of a, of, of a Dylanologist, but I mean, it's not up there for my money with, uh, with Sad-Eyed Lady or Visions of Johanna, but I mean, I think it's uh, probably one of the standout tracks, isn't it, nonetheless? I think so. And I think it's got a really important place in the album because one of the themes that many people have pointed to is this kind of sense of... Um, entrapment and a kind of longing for escape and then obviously you've got the uh, the title gives you a clue about the fact that those themes are captured here and i i again come back to this sense that i had right from the start of my exposure to this album which is that the images are striking sometimes they're disturbing they're almost always affecting in some way and it doesn't really matter what they mean it doesn't matter even if the song itself hangs together cohesively it's that cumulative effect that that gives it its power and really socks a punch and again i i get what john lennon was getting at but (laughs) as somebody who as a naive teenager tried to write songs like um stuck inside a mobile it definitely isn't a case of just selecting a few words from a thesaurus and a few literary characters and pasting them together there's more to it than that and the fact that it does work in such a such a an effective way shows that there is a lot more to it i think even if it is on that kind of subconscious emotional level and it doesn't work on an intellectual level i agree and i think it's there's almost an aspect here of it's like painting with with words isn't it i mean like if you think of uh Words as being, I mean, to use this analogy of like little blobs and dabs of colour kind of thing, it's, it, it builds up an overall picture. And I mean, anyone who, any, anyone is capable of throwing paint at a, a canvas, but not everyone's going to be a Jackson Pollock, for example. And, and, and that's, that's, that's kind of the key, isn't it? I suppose that's where the, where the skill comes from. One song that I think is worth mentioning here, I mean, there's plenty of songs that are worth mentioning. We're not going to get to, to talk about all of them, obviously, what with this being a double album and everything. But Leopard Skin Pillbox Hat bears a striking resemblance. I'm not the first person to say this, so I can't claim this as an original thought, but a striking resemblance to a Lightning Hopkins song called Automobile Blues, which was released in 1949. In terms of the phrasing, particularly the bit at the kind of end of each verse, and the, I think that it's fair to say that the the, the blues guitar playing is is very it's stylistically quite similar to to Lightning Hopkins. Actually, I don't think that that in any way uh, detracts from the fact that it's a great song. And and I mean, let's face it. Um, Lightning Hopkins did not invent the blues. He didn't invent the sort of WC handy kind of 12 bar form or anything along those kind of lines. But yeah, what do you reckon? Yeah, well, this is the one song that that absolutely does bring back the blues, doesn't it? And is it Robbie Robertson that's playing the blues guitar on this? Yeah, and um, and playing it very, very well. I mean, this is this is the one where um, it was uh, uh, Bloomfield, wasn't it? One now was playing on uh, 
on Highway 61. But I mean, this is every bit as raw and kind of has the same kind of impact as anything on Highway 61, I think. And the other thing about this song is I think this is probably the closest he gets to his kind of comedy uh, style. And it's a very different comedy, isn't it, than his... Uh, exhibited on previous records. But that is one of the things that I noticed listening to this for the purposes of this exercise, having listened to the previous six records. There aren't a lot of laughs. There's a, there's a lot of wry smiles and there's a lot of appreciation of some very acerbic wit, but there's there's no there's no belly laughs really, except perhaps on this song. And that's that's one of the things that, that I think about this song, which is different from perhaps some other people, because I don't see this as a particularly cruel song. <laughs> there are some which I would uh, put in that category on this album, but I do see it more as a as a as a as a comedic song than a kind of pointed character assassination. But I know people have said this is about Edie Sedgwick and people have said it's a a pretty nasty put down in a way. And there's that line, isn't there, from Patti Smith? I think it's the preface to one of her poems where she, well, the, the poem's called Edie Sedgwick, but she talks about her being the heroine of Blonde on Blonde. And I think it's this is one of the songs that she's talking about in reference to that. But yeah, I, I see it in a kinder way uh, than that. But it's that mix of the uh, the comedy and the blues performance that makes it a standout track, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you, you could obviously, if you interpreted it as being about Edie Sedgwick, then then yes, it would be. It would seem quite acerbic. I mean, I don't know. I mean, last time that I wore a leopard skin pillbox hat, I didn't I didn't feel uh, like Bob Dylan was getting at me. I don't know about you. How many leopard skin pillbox hats <laughs> have you got in your collection, Mark? Like. <laughs> Well, he's just jumped on them all, so <laughs> can't wear them anymore. The rest of them are with the what's it, with the Milliner, Milner, Milner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's probably a good place to um, to jump off into some of the themes, then, isn't it? Because we'll there's, there's, there's many other songs we can talk about individually, but let's yeah, maybe try yeah, and pick yeah. a few off this way. Okay. Um, as long as we've done, are we done with hats? Is hats a theme, or are we? Uh... <laughs> depends how long we go on for i think that might <laughs> rear its head again in the third or fourth hour so yeah i mean regardless of whether this song or this album is about a particular woman and you know we've talked already about sad-eyed lady being pretty transparently about his then wife regardless of that there's no getting away from the fact that almost every song is very much a relationship song which again it almost shocked me to realize that that's something completely different from the subject matter of all of his previous albums up to this point. I don't really know what to make of that. I suppose for a lot of the songs, you could perhaps draw other meanings into them. Um, they're not, and they're certainly not simple love songs of the, the type that you know the Beatles have been doing a couple of years before, for sure. But they do certainly all have this kind of grounding in, um, I suppose, you know, interpersonal, human, romantic relationships. And the other really striking thing about it is that so many of them are about love triangles, aren't they? I did make a list uh, of all of them, and it's pretty much every song has has that angle in it, even tangentially. So yeah, that's that's kind of interesting, and you can see why people would then start trying to fill in the names for the points on those love triangles, which we probably don't want to get into. But yeah, I did think it was a massive departure in terms of the subject matter of the songs from his previous albums. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think that again, we've talked. Not so much lately, but we certainly talked in the early days of Dylan's kind of recording career of, of, of the way that he wears masks. And he is clearly wearing lots of masks on this record once again. And I think that 
it's interesting because there's clearly I think there's a lot more of him in this but I think he buries it even more deeply than he might have done before and obviously you mentioned earlier on you've got Sarah his 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 wife wife or wife to be I forget at this stage in time but I mean her former husband is kind of lurking around in the background which kind of gives gives a sense of conflict really as much as anything but there's there's a lot of longing in this and there's a lot of yearning and um and I'm not entirely sure why I mean it's not like he's necessarily lovelorn in this but at the same time, it's not either the, the kind of confessional sort of Topanga Canyon kind of singer-songwriter wearing your heart on your sleeve by any means. But I think that's perhaps the genius of it. I mean, it's the way that the meaning shifts. It's the way that you could ascribe loads and loads of different potential kind of relationships to this. Yeah, it, it's definitely there. And it's it, it's definitely there as a kind of theme that, that, that sort of runs right the way through. But again, I think in terms of this kind of yearning and this sort of longing, there's, there's all almost like a desire for freedom maybe liberation kind of and I don't know whether that's from a romantic point of view or from like some idealized thing of how about I settle down with whoever it may be or is it maybe because of the the trappings of fame I mean I, I don't know it could be it could be any of those things or maybe none of them yeah I mean that's certainly one of the themes of the album isn't it and it's a strange thing for somebody who's just been married to be uh, to be singing about so you can certainly uh, uh, look at it on a, on a number of levels and I think that experience of the whirlwind he was in and the way that he must have felt trapped by that kind of mad circus of, um, of fame certainly plays into it but I guess that uh, sense of entrapment and that kind of theme of these love triangles that keep reoccurring those are two of the things that bind the album together and it's that I suppose it's those uneasy dynamics that make it more than just an album with lots of good songs and lots of great performances it's that little grit in the in the oyster isn't it that really produces something that's so attractive and wants you to come back to it again and again and again i mean there's so many examples but you've got the the famous line in uh, one of us must know um you just happen to be there that's all which is such a cruel cruel line isn't it and you get <laughs> you get that with um with uh, Louise in Visions of Johanna to an extent as well, don't you? But then also, fourth time around, that tends to get talked about as this Norwegian wood parody, which, you know, we, I think you've got some thoughts on that, Rich. But leaving that to one side, it is such a brutally dark description of, I don't even know if it's a love triangle, but it's this relationship between these three people, which is extremely disturbing, wrapped up in uh, a, a lovely performance and some beautifully elliptical and sometimes quite funny lyrics. At the heart of it is something, <laughs> something very, very unpleasant. And I guess that brings us on to one of the charges that's been levelled at Dylan and this album in particular, which is, you know, the sense that a lot of this is misogynistic. And, you know, the, the song that always gets brought up is just like a woman. I must say, I, I don't see that even now. When I was a lot younger, I never, it never even crossed my mind to think about that. I think it's a really interesting angle to think about now. But for me, the song Just Like a Woman, I always thought that the uh, the comparison was between the adult woman and the child. And so it was that that the song's about. You know, it's like, oh, you act just like a adult, but you break like a child rather than the kind of dichotomy between woman and man. So I didn't see it as a, as a misogynistic song and I probably still don't, although I can certainly understand why people do see it in that way. But yeah, what do you reckon, Rich? This is one I was familiar with from the, uh, the greatest hits. And so I knew just like a woman before listening to, to Blonde on Blonde and 
I think the age that I listened to this song, first of all, would have been, I don't think I thought that deeply about anything in the world, to be honest with you, other than maybe football, but even that probably not. So um, I think from memory, I just saw it as a pretty melody and quite a romantic song. Now, I totally see how it can, you, you could do a variety of different readings on this. Obviously, from a feminist angle, it is pretty outmoded, isn't it? If, if, you, if you wanted to view it like that. But I, I think it's more... I, I even now I think it's probably more to do with growing up or, and, and sort of maturity um, in, in terms of, sort of emotional maturity I suppose then I think it is about being terribly kind of misogynistic but I suppose as well he, he'd have been running in lots of circles of fairly well-to-do kind of people and whether or not like it might have been an observation of certain stratas of society I don't I don't really know I mean that's that's just one theory that I have with this gotta stop using this word theory it makes it sound like I've, I've kind of written these things down with a with a quill pen or something like that but um yeah I can't remember the actual question that we were we were talking about now I think it it still remains for me very listenable this this song but it plays it's a kind of poor relation to I want you I just think that kind of trumps it in, in virtually every way I agree, um, except perhaps for the last verse. I do still find that incredibly powerful every time I hear it. Um, and that line about when we meet again, introduced as friends, is is wonderful. And I think that is one of the issues that you get with this album, isn't it? It's every single song on it has at least one moment, which would be a highlight of pretty much any other album even in Dylan's catalogue never mind your run-of-the-mill rock singer-songwriter yes I mean you mentioned on 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 fourth time around then the idea of the Beatles kind of connection because it's very kind of similar to Norwegian Wood it's a very pretty melody there have been those people who've sort of suggested that I never ask for your crutch now don't ask for mine is is a put down specifically directed against Lennon um now, I'm not entirely sure about how much kind of conflict they had, whether or not there was bad blood between them at this point in, in history. But, I mean, OK, so I've already mentioned the fact that Lennon wrote this kind of parody of Mobile. But, I mean, if this put-down in fourth time around is indeed a put-down, then uh, I think that in terms of the slinging mud at each other, then Dylan probably comes out having thrown more mud, if that makes sense. That's a, that's. A, <laughs> like a, a really kind of harsh put down. I mean, what, what do you reckon? Do you reckon there's anything in that? Or do you reckon it's just kind of been misconstrued? I tend to put this in the same bracket as the booing at Newport and the, um, you know, the reactions on his world tour. The, it suits the legend, doesn't it, to play it up. What could be what could be more juicy than having John Lennon and Bob Dylan at each other's throats and driving each other on to ever greater heights of songwriting? And I, 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 I mean, I've got no idea, of course, but I, I, it would be astonishing if they were if they didn't consider each other rivals and that they were weren't keen to put one over each other. But I always think that famous scene that was supposed to be in Eat the Document or or was in Eat the Document where they they're in the car and they're they're riffing off each other and that was always presented before I'd seen it. I'd read about it a lot and it's always presented as. Um, Oh, you know, um, they're uh, they're really on edge and they're circling each other and they're, mm. you know, uh, the knives are out. But whenever I watch it now, I just think it's a couple of very stoned, very tired guys just trying to show off 
and Lennon probably thinking, who is this lunatic who's obviously completely out of his head? What's he going to do next? And there's probably not a lot more to it than that. So I, I, I think it's probably, I think that's probably overblown. And also, I've never really bought the fact that this is a, a full-on parody of Norwegian Wood. It may well have been that in Dylan's mind when he set out to record it, but there's so much more going on in it. So yeah, I, I don't really spend too much time worrying about about that particular connection. Yeah, I, I think that obviously any artist is going to have insecurities. But when you're as big, or when you were as big as the Beatles were, and Bob Dylan was, I can't imagine that either of those two guys would have been sitting in the uh, in, in in the back of that car and that film, thinking, "Oh my goodness, I'm I'm not going to you know make any money in the future because of this fella that's sitting next to me." Just they they were they were poles apart in that regard, and. I think that, yeah, they, they would obviously have been very, very aware of what each other was doing. But I think, I mean, the media love to hype this. This is the this is the blur versus oasis of its time, isn't it? I mean, like the, the, it sells newspapers, doesn't it? It sells copy. And, and yeah. so, so journalists will always make a make a big thing out of this. I mean, one thing that I, I mean, again, we, we had a couple of questions raised about this. And I, 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 there's no way of knowing, but I think it's just worth mentioning. This sense of sort of love triangles, the guilt, the suspicion and all of that kind of stuff. Do we think that there is any kind of mileage in, in putting some of this down to maybe kind of dope psychosis or the fact that he was into some pretty serious narcotics at this moment in time? Because, I mean, it's interesting that some of the Nashville guys kind of dismissed this because, of course, they were very much on the clock in the studio. You couldn't drink. You certainly couldn't imbibe in any other illicit substances because it was all kind of unionised kind of stuff and uh, the rules were very, very strict. But, I mean, Bob Dylan, in terms of the writing process, what do you reckon, Mark? I mean, it's uh, I think it's uh, it was certainly in the background if it wasn't necessarily a kind of direct contributory factor. Yeah, that's pretty much what I think about it. I mean, we spoke already about how this album encapsulates that kind of late night feeling, but it's not a relaxed late night feeling by any stretch of imagination, as as you've just beautifully outlined. It's that kind of doubt, that guilt, that kind of wired nervous tension. And of course, a lot of that is, is the sort of thing that you would feel if you were wired on speed and perhaps even stronger things, which Dylan almost certainly was. But again, going back to what I said when we talked about another side, I think, you know, you've got to accept that was the world he was in. That was part of the influence on him. It affected the way he worked. I mean, you don't you don't sit up in a Nashville studio till 4 a.m. writing the lyrics to Sad Eyed Lady if, you, if you're not on some something pretty strong, I'd suggest. But I don't think that is the explanation for why the album is as it is. I think it's a contributory factor. Yeah, no, I think, I, I think I'd go with that. I mean, as we've said, Previously, um, there were a lot of people that took an awful lot of substances in the 1960s, but <laughs> very few of them produced any art of note. And uh, it's an even more exclusive club of, uh, of people that produced anything even approaching a, a piece of work <laughs> of the quality of this. So, so yeah, you're right. I mean, it may well have been there sort of bubbling away in the background. I mean, we're probably we're probably at about the point now when we we start talking about highlights and and lowlights and last thoughts and all of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, Mark, your sort of highlight, lowlight. Yeah, it's hard to uh, to pick both on this album, isn't it? But I guess if I was going to pick a highlight, I could pick any number of songs. But I'll give a shout out to most likely "You Go Your Way" and "I'll Go Mine" because we haven't mentioned that yet. I do think that's a fantastic pop song really but what I wanted to really draw attention to was this phrasing again 
we've got to say his singing throughout this is fantastic, but particularly his phrasing. And on this song in particular, I just adore it. And especially that final verse where he's got, uh, you say you got some other kind of lover. And yes, I believe you do. I mean, just the way he delivers that line is just tremendous. And it, as I said, right at the start, it's the way he emphasizes the words and it's the, um, the, the delivery is just so pitch perfect throughout this album, but particularly on this song. Um, so I pick that as my highlight, although I could have gone with, with absolutely anything really. No real low lights, but I will confess to occasionally skipping pledging my time and, and just going straight into Visions of Johanna. But you'll forgive me for that, surely, won't you, Rich? I will indeed. Yeah, I've, I've got to say that if, if I were to pick a low light, it would probably be pledging my time as well. But I don't think it's because it's a bad song. And I'd certainly think that the performance and the quality of the arrangement kind of carries it through. And let's face it, it would be on virtually any other album, it would be almost standout track. So, uh, so there we go. I mean, I've mentioned before, Sad Old Lady of the Lowlands. I would still put that up there as my kind of highlight from this album. But it's so difficult to pick. It's so so difficult to pick a highlight in an album that has has so many highlights. Really, we normally then at, at this point talk about last thoughts. Then, so last last thoughts on Blonde on Blonde. What are what are your thoughts then, Mark? Well, it continues to be an enduring favourite. Um, I don't think that's a controversial opinion. I said at the end of last our last episode that I thought I probably preferred Blonde on Blonde overall to Highway 61, where they're both absolutely superb, wonderful records, of course. I think I still go along with that. And after spending a couple of weeks with it, I think there's a couple of things, really. The maturity, the virtuosity of the performances both from Dylan himself and, as we've discussed, from his accompanying musicians, I think is on another level, again, from uh, Highway 61, which is saying something. But also, I think those themes that we've talked about, this sense of the city at night, those uh, love triangles, those um, possibly amphetamine-induced senses of guilt and doubt that pervade the whole thing, and then that wonderful epiphany at the end of um, Sad-Eyed Lady, I think that makes it a much more cohesive album than Highway 61, or any of his others, actually, up to this point. And for that reason, I still think this is probably a whisker ahead of uh, anything we've looked at so far. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that I prefer Highway 61 as an album, but I think that there are stronger songs on Blonde on Blonde, if that makes sense. I think that it's just the the fact that this is a double album. I, th- I think that you get you get a much kind of punchier experience really from highway 61 but i've thoroughly enjoyed listening to blonde on blonde this time and i think it's gone up even further in my estimations since previous time that i that i I kind of gave it any serious listens i suppose it is difficult now to think of it as being ahead of its time because of course it's been so massively undeniably influential to generations really of, of musicians but i can i can kind of understand how it must have just felt completely out there upon release. I mean, the analogy that I'm going to use is a very, very spurious one here, but the England footballer Martin Peters was referred to by Alf Ramsey as being 10 years ahead of his time. The trouble is that footballers, especially then, had uh, relatively short careers. And so by the time (laughs) 10 years had passed, no one quite knew what it was about him that was so ahead of its time. Whereas I think the nice thing about an album, particularly an album like this, is that it has had those years for people to kind of be able to reassess it and to kind of understand its influence. And uh, and so, I mean, it's up there, isn't it? I mean, I know that I've got my soft spot for Highway 61, and I always will do, but this is this is a astonishing, astonishing album. And I think I struggle to add anything further than that, really. 
Well, I mean, that's very appropriate because obviously this album was a full stop in Dylan's career, wasn't it? It wasn't quite the absolute final full stop, but it might have been in different circumstances. But we know that what happened after this album was his motorcycle accident or whatever it was that put him out of action for 18 months uh, or so. And of course, we now know he wasn't really out of action. He had plenty going on even during his convalescence. But we're going to skip over that for now, aren't we? And we're going to be coming back with John Wesley Harding. Absolutely. So thank you very much indeed for listening to this podcast. Please look for us on Twitter, post any questions and we'll try and discuss them. Uh, You can find us under at Dylan American and we'll see you next time.